Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, an adorable romp through time with Richard Curtis's 2013 film, 
about time. My name is Tim, and this is the year that would change my life forever. Happy New Year! For me, it was always going to be all about love. I'm Tim. I'm Mary. It's my mother's name. I remind you of your mother. Obviously, I should have thought this through more. Could you give me one second? About time, Andy. Richard Curtis is back at it. And boy, does he like cuteness. All I can say, Pete, is it's about time. <laughs> it's about time for you to see this movie. You had not seen it. <laughs> I hadn't. No, I definitely had not. So, uh, All right. So why don't you open us up? What did you think? Richard Curtis is a uh, uh, mostly a writer who has kind of become a director who I can, I can handle sometimes. Um, I think sometimes his, his <laughs> doesn't stuff doesn't sound can, like we're off to a great start. I, I don't think we're not, not off to a great start. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I like, I like what he does. I like his characters. I, I can enjoy his stories. Sometimes I feel, um, that they can be really treacly and, mm-hmm. uh, and a little too much like love. Actually, I know that is like world renowned as like this film that everybody seems to love for some reason i really find that it's just way too much for me and i can watch it and i go okay yeah it's cute is a lot of love happening in this film um so much love so much love actually can't handle it throw Werner herzog in and then i can take it (laughs) no it's it's not quite that bad but um but sometimes i find his stuff to be a little much and i feel that he kind of can go down these roads whether he's writing or directing or both where he really has his style set as far as um just the way he tells his stories he loads his stories with quirky um supporting characters he really enjoys those this film has plenty of those um there are uh just kind of elements of the kind of the way the love unfolds and everything that can that can you know fill the story as well Sometimes it works better than others. Um, I think Notting Hill is a really stellar example of Richard Curtis uh, as a writer. I really think that that film works quite well. I like it quite a bit. Um, And as I said, Love Actually is kind of on the lower end of the scale for me. um, This film I found to be, um, it was not what I was expecting. And to that end, I think I ended up enjoying it maybe a I don't know. I I don't know if I enjoyed it a little more, or a little less. I think I enjoyed it more because it surprised me. It was it was there was more to it than I thought. But I also thought that it went down roads that were unexpected, but weren't necessarily the roads that I thought made sense to go down. And so in the end, I'm like, okay, I still enjoyed the film. Um, I didn't love it, but I enjoyed it, and I thought it had a nice message. So all in all, I enjoyed it, but I, I didn't love it. That was a very long winded way of saying that. Well, you got there. It took a while. You got, you did get there. That was good. I, uh, I'm with you. I find, um, yeah, I, I find Richard Curtis uh, sometimes a caricature of himself, and and writes that way. Although I have to say, I enjoyed Pirate Radio, um, uh, and uh, as a writer, I, I, uh, Four Weddings at a Funeral has a, a really special place in my heart, and so. Um, I agree with you on love, actually, though. I absolutely agree with you. I, I have a really hard time 
with with that movie. It's it's just too much in in a lot of ways that I find strange because I I feel like it's a movie that I should like. I should really appreciate and have my heart thoroughly warmed and I just don't. This movie is really interesting to me because it adds uh it it's all the Richard Curtis with this time travel mechanic that it absolutely wears on its sleeve. It is super adorable about it. The characters, I think, are super adorable. The quirky ones, the angry ones, our central characters uh, are are fantastic. I, I just enjoy my time with them. Uh, I really enjoy my time with Rachel McAdams. I think she she carries the sort of subject of the um, you know the the time travel foil uh, role really really well. I think she's just great. Um, so. Then you get the mechanics themselves and the rules, and we're going to talk about the rules, the time travel rules, shortly. Um, I really struggle with the rules, and if you listen to past me talking about when time travel works and when it doesn't, in my opinion, this movie should be a big, fat failure, because you can't put it together based on the rules that that the the story builds for itself you can't put it together in a very clean way like if you watch it again you you have to you sort of be aware that it's going to violate its own intents and i have a huge problem with that normally this movie i'm i'm just going to get it out there i let a lot of that go because of the just adorable factor i i think it's it is an adorable little film and it it may i left i finished the film feeling happy well, as you're meant to. I mean, he designs it in a way where you're going to feel happy at the end because it builds to an ending that I think is incredibly satisfying. And that is a very big strength of the film and of Richard Curtis because I think he finds the way to get the honesty and the message through um, all of the road bumps that he has over the course of the story and ends up making it work. But um, I ended up having a harder time with some of the the, uh, time travel uh, rules that he kind of throws in and then seems to uh, break willy nilly. Um, It just some of it, I I just didn't know, you know, why did that have to go that route? Um, And and some of it, it just, I don't know, it's kind of frustrating. And it left me sometimes just going, I just don't understand what these, you know, how he's setting these rules up, because some of them were just he seemed to set him up only just to to decide I'm just going to break it because it doesn't matter. And that ended up frustrating me because I felt like he had done it fairly cleanly and could have made the story work um, without having to have gone there. Oh, yeah. I, I think that is the that's the real trick. Right. And I think he dances around what would have been a very simple solution uh, to, to making the rule set open ended. And in, in fact, I think it's near the end. Uh, that uh, Bill Nye, his father, uh, Nye, Nye, Nye. I, I always get that wrong. Uh, his father says at the end, you know, I've, I've something like I've taken it one step farther, or I've, you know, I never got that far. Right? He alludes to the fact that maybe the rules are flexible, like maybe the rules are only the rules because, um, you know, that's as far as he'd gotten, or he and his his lineage had ever gotten, and. Uh, I, I just feel like that wasn't really cemented. It was still an illusion and not something that they actually used as part of the narrative. And so we we don't really have it to work with. That that whole issue uh, aside, I think the other thing for me that I, I, I still am a little torn with this film because, and I don't know if it's my uh, expectations of it because of the trailers, um, but I really walked into this um, all these years later, uh, just 
still expecting this to be kind of a time travel romantic comedy. It kind of mm-hmm. sets it up that way. And and this we should probably just jump into our deep scene dive here right after this because I think yeah. this 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 crux of this is right there. Um, it, the the trailer everything really sets it up that you know this is a guy who's unlucky in love, and he really wants to fall in love, and you get this sense from the beginning that he's going to learn how to time travel, and he's going to uh, figure out how to get the girl, but it's going to take a long time because uh, because of the way that he's jumping through time and messing things up and, and trying to fix things. You know, in fact, as I was watching this, I thought very much of our list last week and the downward spiral. And I'm like, this is one of those things where he could keep trying to fix things, only making it worse and worse every time he jumps back in time until finally mm-hmm. at the end, he ends up, you know, ac- fixing it by happenstance, really. Um, but that, but the film didn't go there. In fact, it really threw me uh, for a loop when all of a sudden we hit the midpoint of the film and they're getting married and then they're having kids. And I'm like, where is this? This isn't a romantic comedy. Is he going to like somehow accidentally step out of this entire life and have to build it back up again? But no, it just kind of keeps moving forward. And I'm like, where? And it, it was like I said at the beginning, it was kind of exciting that the film was taking a different turn. But at the same time, I'm like, this is not a romantic comedy. Where am I going here? And I, I, I felt a little lost, I guess. Yeah, it, it seems like there was one movie the romantic comedy part was in the beginning, and it was super cute. And then we get into this movie about implications of the choices that we make in our lives and uh, the implications of being man and what it means to be a father, a parent, uh, a partner, uh, and all of these things through the lens of what would we do if we could change our, our past decisions. Uh, and, and it comes to a head, you know, at, at when we deal with his sister uh, and her challenges. Uh, we should talk about that. But first, you're right. Let's jump into the deep scene dive. Let's do it. The, the scene that we wanted to talk about, and I would I would say, and tell me if you disagree, this is not the best scene in the film. It is not a scene that necessarily represents uh, the the sort of pinnacle of what the film has to offer, but it is the scene in which Dad tells Tim the big secret. It's right about four minutes and 25 seconds into the movie uh, where Tim sits down with Dad, who is preparing to uh, actually uh, unveil or reveal this secret that all of the men in their family have had since the beginning. And the secret is that the men in the family can travel in time. Well, more accurately, travel back in time. We can't travel into the future. This is such a weird joke. It's seriously not a joke. So you're saying that you and Grandad and his brothers could all travel back in time? Absolutely. And you still do? Absolutely. Although it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's only in my own life. I can only go to places where I actually was and can remember. I can't kill Hitler or shag Helen of Troy, unfortunately. Okay, stop. Um, if it's true, uh, which it isn't. Although it is. Although it isn't, obviously. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. Which it isn't. But if it was, how would I actually... The how is the easy bit, in fact. You go into a dark place. Big cupboards are very useful, generally. Toilets at a pinch. Then you clench your fists like this. Think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there. After a bit of a stumble and a rumble and a tumble. When I come back downstairs after standing in a cupboard with my fist clenched, you're going to be in so much trouble. Well, let's see, shall we? Okay, so the rules, well, and we don't get all of these rules in this scene, but basically over the course of the film we learn, okay, it happens when they turn 21, which is why Dad's telling him on his 21st birthday, only the male members of the family can travel through time. 
um, only travel to the past is possible um, with, and, and it has to be within your own life. Um, mm-hmm. And to that end, this is my understanding of what that rule actually means. Tell me if I'm wrong. Well, I know I'm wrong, but it, it sets it up where you go back in time and now you're in that moment and then you kind of live forward again from that point is what the way that I felt that he meant. But I clearly they can also travel to the future, which is well, they already can, they can travel the to. Yeah, to exactly, exactly. And that is a that's sort of a fundamental flaw of the, the premise of the time travel premise. Like if you set up a rule that you can only travel back to a certain point, but, but then, you know, you have to break the rule because you could never get back to your present. And you can never get back to your present. Whatever changes that you make in the past are going to be reflected, and uh, throughout time when you get back to this this you know chronological point in time. Well, and they're pretty you know wishy washy with that as a rule because they're like, what about the butterfly effect? And he's just like, oh, I've never done anything. Oh, never run into it. <laughs> that's caused a problem before. So it's like, uh, okay, that's kind of a weak way to get out of it. But I'll let it slide because it's a you know at the time it's a rom com is what you're expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. anyway, my understanding of that rule is you have to go to the past and then you relive that point forward again. Well, but see, that wouldn't make sense. So I don't know. But clearly it didn't make sense. So I guess what he means is you can travel to the past, but only in context of your own life. And you can't travel to the future of your life if you haven't lived it yet, I guess is what he's saying there. Which, again, the movie violates horribly later on right i mean does he travel to his own future well so he travels back in time and then makes a change and then travels back forward again uh because he ends up traveling back before the birth of his child well but that was but he traveled to his own present where he had already been he didn't travel to like when he was 70 years old future is what i mean yes exactly that's, he that's what i that. think see, they're the, trying this to is say the by problem I know. And that's what I think is is unclear about the rule, because, you know, if you change something so significantly as to like having a different child, if the changes change the world around you in that significant kind of a way uh, in your own life, like that feels like you're traveling to the future. You're traveling to something you hadn't experienced yet. Yeah, it's we learned this in Back to the Future, too, about creating an alternate future. Yes, and, and that is troublesome in this movie, but it's only troublesome because they set it up the way they did. Like, they could have written around it. Anyway, there is there another rule? And, well, I'm, okay, I'm you sorry, can't go back to before up. you were born, which is kind of the same thing, you know, stuck in the past yeah. of your own life. And then, Although yes, I have like to you, say, I love, I love how the dad, how Bill Nye says, you know, I can't go back and shag Helen of Troy, unfortunately. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fantastic. Which is great. Anyway. But then the last rule, which you already said, you can't, uh, if you travel back in time to before your child is born, it might cause a different child to be born and the original child to be lost, which he he learns the hard way because he goes back in time, changes something and comes back and he is a totally different child. He talks to his dad. This is what I don't get, though. He talks to his dad who tells him this rule at that point, which is kind of dumb to tell him that. And, and then... And then I guess he goes back and changes it and comes back and now he's got his original child again. But it's like, how? Yeah. What are the odds? His dad said, you know, you can go back in time and all you want, but it's not going to change which of the sperm is the one that I was like, oh, Lord, this is really complicated rule. Yeah. But he still ended up with his original kid. So I really uh, I don't know. It was it was a bit of a struggle to sort through that mess. It it was. And it and I uh 
I feel like the weight of of um, you know this film for a lot of people sits on whether or not the mechanics of the time travel work. My sense is that Curtis is writing this for a very different audience, and that you know where this works, uh, it's going to be where you are enable yourself to stop and uh, to stop thinking so hard about the rules, and we think probably too hard about the rules. Um, well, and I think you're right. I mean, you know, the Richard Curtis crowd is probably very happy with kind of the film because it has the romance, it has the love, it has the drama, it has all it of has those the elements. Comedy, right? Yeah, you right. know, it has the great scene where he's a, you. You get a number of these sequences where he's he's getting better at certain skills. He's getting better at lovemaking. You know that that was a hysterical sequence. I thought it was really great. Yeah, right. One of our one of our many little montages. The um, yeah. and I, I guess that's to that end. I I will have to say okay. I, I'll let it go in that context, knowing that you know it's it's a Richard Curtis film, and they're using it's just kind of the the cutesy way to kind of have an opportunity to throw time travel into this this romantic uh, film that he's making. Okay, there you go. I still have some issues with it, um, but you know. I don't know. I, I, we can go on and on. I mean, why is it all of a sudden he's able to take his sister through time? I don't know. That I have a real problem with because not only does he take his sister through time, his dad and and he travel through time and they do this sort of uh, recursive loop, right? Where he goes back in time to when he was a teenager and then his dad goes back in time with him to when he is now uh, a child and they're skipping rocks together on the ocean. Oh, and it's a, a wonderful... Yeah. I thought it was young dad and younger son. I didn't realize the dad was the kid. No, no, no. The dad's not the kid. I was saying he, uh, you know, referring to Gleason, Donald Gle- to Tim. So, it, so Tim actually travels back once to his and then travels self. back again to his childhood self. So yeah. how does how does that oh, work? Gotcha, like, right. how does he does he have to come back to exactly that moment so he can sort of catch up with himself and travel back ahead in time again? Uh, that seems there's got to be a rule it's like being flashbacks broken. within flashbacks. Exactly, exactly. He he incepted himself. Yeah. So I, uh, I I had trouble with that, and so there are a lot of things. If I stop and think about the rules for a half second, uh, I get really frustrated with this movie, and I don't want to be frustrated with this movie because I felt so uh, I, I felt so great about the performances, you know, starting with Donald Gleason uh, as. Tim Lake. I mean, I, I just really enjoy watching this guy work. I think he's a fantastic performer, and he just carries that sort of nebbishy, um, you know, charm uh, as the the sort of spiritual successor to, you know, Hugh Grant. Uh, I think he's great. I found him really wonderful on screen. Bill Nye as his dad, I, I really, I, I wish there was some sort of a hole in my family tree because <laughs> we all? I, I want him in it. That's one of my oh. notes I wrote down. I'm like, why can't he speak at my wedding or at my funeral or something? I just need him to speak at some point to me in my life. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I love the speech, the way he talks to in our in our scene here, the way he talks to his son, the way he delivers this ridiculousness. Like we have, you know, we can travel through time, and 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 Tim's response, "Your this is a major joke." And when I come back down here after you get me to stand in a closet in the dark for a few minutes, you're going to be in a, a lot of trouble. I love this father son exchange. You know, why would I lie to someone who I'm? fairly fond of I, his delivery is so perfect it's so perfect in the context of such ridiculousness and they're together able to sell it for me 
Well, and and to that end, yes, I, I agree. Both of these performers are just brilliant, and they are brilliant in this film together. Um, but I think a lot of it, it does it, the the strength of this scene comes from Richard Curtis's script, which I think is in this moment. I mean, he's really doing what he does best. He's he's you know creating this conversation between these two people that comes across so perfectly and brilliantly paired with Mark Day's editing and just I mean the way that it 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 plays is just so snappy and quick and has that comedy like when when uh, Tim is saying all right if it's if this is for real which it isn't and then you cut to dad who says which it is and then cut back to yeah, Tim which yes. it isn't but and the way that they they play that back and forth editing and the the conversation it is just so sharp and so on the ball exactly how it needs to be for kind of that comedy uh element to to work so effectively in this story uh it's it's just done perfectly in this scene and, and there are a number of these kinds of moments you know we have another moment later where um, you know where we actually meet rachel mcadams and her character and so we have this Donald gleason you know rachel mcadams meet cute and it's adorable after the the you know dining in the dark restaurant that that whole conversation is really very sweet and very charming and when they finally see each other in the street uh, I I I have fallen in love with them both. Uh, there, it's it works it exactly. It pulls just the right strings. You really like me, even my frock. I love your frock. And um, my hair. It's not too brown. I love brown. <laughs> my fringe is new. The fringe is perfect. The fringe is the best fit. Did it feel like there were a lot of montages in this thing? It did. And this is something that, um, I mean, I, I feel like Richard Curtis, that's something that he loves to throw into his films because I, I feel they all have montages. Um, I can't remember if there's a specific montage in Love Actually, but man, the whole film is like a montage. Yeah, the whole thing's a montage, right? <laughs> um, but certainly there are a lot of montages here. You've got the clothing one, which is such a tried um, montage to have. And it really struck me when I was watching it. It's like, why are we... Why is this scene in here? Because it really was an unnecessary scene. You know, we've seen it a million times. So to that end, it wasn't anything original. And the context of it wasn't anything original either. It really was kind of, for me, one of the most useless things in the film. Uh, the real anchor montage, though, is the uh, the musicians in the tube. And this montage, uh, you know, we, we get to actually drive, I should say drive through, but plow through a lot of time. Uh, all in the context of these two people, um, you know, going on their way and in separate directions each day, kind of their workaday lives to different trains in the tube, uh, you know, with these uh, uh, street musicians busking uh, in the, the center area there. Uh, how did this, did this work for you? It worked well enough for me. Like I, I rolled my eyes at it a little bit. I'm like, oh, here we go with one of the montages. Um, cause, and not only that, but it's like, oh, it's the, it's the live musicians who happen to be in the tube who are going to be singing to us over the montage. And, you know, that kind of was like, ugh, one of these again. And, but I, I rolled my eyes, but I went along with it. Cause I'm like, okay, this is the rom-com musicians in the tube montage. I'll just go along with it. Um, 
And so to that end, I guess it was okay. But then the movie kind of like all like shortly after that turned into this, it's not a rom-com anymore. And then it's like, well, then why was that scene in here? Because it doesn't fit the context of whatever this movie became. And so to that end, it's like, I don't think it ended up feeling like as, uh, as uh, I don't want to say appropriate, but it just didn't feel as at home for me in the film anymore. I, I think I disagree with you, but I'm not entirely sure. The first time I saw this movie, I know I had that feeling, uh, which is, this is, this is a, it's a montage, you know? I mean, man, exactly. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, they dominate montage now for <laughs> all of history. And, uh, and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. And especially because the weight of montage it, it carries well a lot of the film, um, you know, because we, we have so much of it. Um, uh, you know, the lovemaking and the clothing and there's the family, the family tree montage. And then it's sort of a montage when we see the sister, um, the sister's experience. I mean, it just, uh, God, uh, there's a lot of montage. But this one, right in the middle of the movie, after we know that they're married, after we know that their relationship is secure, which is the one thing that we want out of a, uh, you know, by at this point in a, um, you know, or that we expect at this point in that kind of a narrative, you know, we kind of feel like we're getting to the end of the movie. So we want another relationship is secure. Now this, this thing sort of literally and figuratively changes directions for us. You know, we're in the tube, we're in a very confusing sort of atmosphere. We see them, they're doing well together. But uh, to me, it sort of speaks to the metaphor of, of changing directions, that the movie's going to pivot on us and it's, it's going to be a different thing. I had a better reaction to it this time watching the film than, than I did the last time. It felt more a place than, uh, than the last time I, I, I saw this thing. So I, I wonder if, if it'll soften on you because I totally know that experience. Like I, I remember that. And I, it surprised me that I got to this montage. And I was like, OK, we're going to open a door to something new. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I can see that. I guess, I guess for me, I don't get the feeling that this is going to be high on your list to watch again. Very yeah, soon. I don't know if it's going to be a big rewatch uh, film for me. I mean, despite some really great moments that it did have, this was just one of those ones where it just really kind of stuck out as, oh, here's this thing that they have to throw in, passage of time, blah blah blah, and it just, I don't know, I just, I, I didn't feel like I needed it at this point. To that end, though, paired with montages, I will say another thing that Richard Curtis loves throwing in, which I already mentioned, is just like the quirky characters. I mean, he really loves having kind of just strange little people in here. And this film is not, uh, there's no shortage here. You know, uh, Kit Kat, his sister, I think, you know, she kind of borders on that. You know, she's kind of that quirky sister, always, you know, running around barefoot and all that. Um, certainly the uncle, um, Richard Cordry's character. I mean, he's just kind of the weird little uncle and you never really know what's going on with him. But, and, you know, I'm not saying these quirky characters can't have their moments. Certainly the moment that, that his uncle tells him, you know, how much that moment meant to him when, when, um, when Tim's dad at, at his wedding said that he was one of the people that he loved. I mean, that was a really touching moment. I liked that quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but still. The uncle is a little weird sometimes. Same thing with Rory. Same thing with Harry. Uh, they all have their just their weird quirks. And I, I don't think that um, is intrinsically a problem. But I do feel that it's become this almost like cliche that Richard Curtis has made of himself as far as his writing style. If you look at Four Weddings and a Funeral or Love Actually or anything that he's done. He really loves this type of character and they stand out because they are just so stinking quirky. 
Um, again, it's not an issue by itself, but when you look at his body of work, you go, okay, I think he needs to try shifting things a little bit so it doesn't feel like he's shaking it all from the quirky tree. I do really enjoy Tom Hollander uh, as one of those quirky characters. I think he's a, a very funny, and our introduction to him is, I think, uh, um, you know, wonderful as as we see him in the middle of some, you know, a storm, a creative storm, uh, as he answers the door, and and uh, you know every time we see him, he's in some sort of of crazy fit. Uh, his language is terrible. He's he's just a a wonderful character, and he is involved in teaching us an important lesson about the the time loops. Right, that uh, in fact after. After Tim has already met Rachel McAdams' character, he then decides, "I'm going to help my my you know roommate here, and I'm going to go back in time and help him fix a problem that was wonderfully charming and does actually uh, you know fill sort of some some great comic meat in the in the movie, um, and at, by doing so, he erases his experience with." Uh, Rachel McAdams' uh, character. Right, suddenly, I can't remember what it, even her name is. Mary, um, just like his Mary. mother. Ugh, duh, just like his mother. Uh, erase the experience that he had with Mary, which I think is really great. It makes for a great beat, uh, you know, so kind of right in the first half of the movie uh, as he resolves to find her again and meet cute all over again. I think it's very charming. Well, but to that end, it, it, it made me ask some questions. Um, one... Apparently he was going to go on a like a, a buddy date, like he and his buddy were going to go out to this restaurant together. So did he just mm-hmm. totally bail on his buddy? Like what happened that night? Uh, you know, why is he, you know, he's not with his friend. So what happened to his friend? That never gets mentioned again. That's why? Right. Why can't he's got this power to travel through time? Why can't he go? Oops, I screwed that up. I'm going to go back again. And this time I'm going to tell my roommate, hey, you better talk to your actor because he uh, he already did because he told the wrong actor, right? We see him tell yeah, the wrong right. actor. He does it twice. Richard Griffiths, yeah. and then he goes back and handles Richard E. Grant. Um, and, and so why doesn't he go back and tell his roommate, hey, by the way, straighten Richard E. Grant out. He doesn't know his lines. I can tell. I've been, I've been watching him. You better straighten him out mm-hmm. or he's going to screw it all up. Give him cue cards, whatever. And then go on the date still. Like, why, why does he have to, you know, go through this whole complicated thing of going, oh, I got to go to a Kate Moss, um, you know, art gallery and, and, and look at, uh, watch for her. And he like, he makes it so complicated and he has the power to travel through time. Come on. I, I know. But if he did everything that you just said, then we're no longer watching the movie. Yeah, but you the, just fixed the thing, and now and now I I just imagine that Richard Curtis is going to sit there and say, "Hey, well, then there's no, uh, you know, there's where's the the conflict?" Yeah, but the problem is when you're writing a film about somebody who can travel through time, that becomes a problem when you don't have them doing things with that power to fix things. It just all of a sudden by by the very nature of your story becomes a weakness yeah but we do see him do it right we do see him use his power to fix things he just doesn't fix this one central thing now it's there's like so many things this is another thing i thought of with his summer with margot robbie 
It's like he waits to the very end of the summer and he finally yes. talks to her. And then she says, I wish you said something earlier. So he goes back in time and he said, and he tells her earlier. She's like, oh, why don't you wait to the very last day and we'll see. I know. It's like, and then he gives up. Why doesn't he go back in time over and over again and keep trying different things? It's like, you know, this is, this is the problem with this time travel thing. Ah, I don't I, give him I give credit. him a lot more credit in the, that point in the movie because he was still trying to figure out his, quote, powers, right? I, I, I really think that no, that, was, he's, he, that was first you go 25 in a closet, minutes of the movie. You close your fists and you picture a time. It was super easy. This was the easiest way to travel through time. I think, I think you are getting older <laughs> and crankier every passing sentence. <laughs> I, um, yeah, it was a real, and it's Margot Robbie. I'm sorry, but come on. Work harder, boy. <laughs> so, what do you do? Um, I'm a reader at a publisher. No, you read for a living. Yes, that's it. I read. Oh, that's so great. But when you're doing normal reading, <laughs> is it ruined because it's your job? You know, like prostitutes, I always worry that when they stop being prostitutes that they can't enjoy sex anymore. You always worry about no, that? No, no, I sometimes worry about oh, it. Oh, good. Okay, because someone who always worried about that would be a bit when of a worry. When you read a newspaper, do you think, oh, get this, it's work? Have you interviewed a lot of prostitutes to When, when you read a menu, or... do you think, no, I'm not reading this unless you pay me hard How cash? How many prostitutes will you need to talk to before this issue is solved? I mean, are you planning to head to Eastern Europe and Thailand? <laughs> So speaking of cast, I mean, we already talked about Rachel McAdams, who is just um, fantastic in this. I mean, she just she carries her weight so wonderfully in this type of film, whether it is kind of a romantic comedy or a family drama or whatever it is. She handles it really well. And I really just have always enjoyed watching Rachel McAdams on screen. I think that she is just she's great and she just handles it so brilliantly. And I just love watching her um and she's one of those people who you know i i it was probably early on i you know i never saw the notebook um but like mean girls was great um uh her part in wedding crashers red eye family stone she had a string of things that she did but then i thought it was really funny that she she did several other i guess you could call them time travel movies the time traveler's wife yeah she's got her own trilogy and the midnight in paris so yeah it's like that's really funny. Here's this this woman who's been in these three. I mean, Midnight in Paris. I guess is kind of time travel. It's kind of like, you know, you just look. Just no, stop. Travel. I wanna. I don't want you to be allowed to talk about Midnight in Paris on the show. <laughs> okay. You find something nice to say or don't say anything at all. <laughs> don't say. Okay, but anyway, um, and technically, Doctor Strange. So you're not even gonna try. I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> And, and technically, Doctor Strange, because he has the time stone, so he can, yeah. you know, she doesn't, but still. Anyway, <sighs> she's wonderful. I love her. I also love Lindsay Duncan as the mother. It's not a big part, but she has what I think is just one of the most um, romantic lines in the whole film, which is, it's a tragically romantic line when she says, yes. I am so uninterested in a life without your father when oh, um, God. they come home uh, after finding out that he's dying of cancer. What a line. Uh, that just really hit me. So yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. Really terrific. And there, there are some little gems like that throughout this movie. I think it's just really smart. 
hit you in the feels. Yeah. Uh, I, and I think, you know, the, the end of the movie, too, I mean, they, the choice of music and throughout most of the movie, the choices of music, I think, were very, very strong. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Ben Folds, the luckiest during the closing montage right before the credits is just uh, just beautiful. It is just beautiful in terms of summarizing lessons learned uh, over the images. I thought it was great. That is, um, that's a good point. I didn't really, um, I've always liked that song, but I didn't think about it in that context. Um, you're right, however. It really does fit nicely at the end there, especially with the theme that we're, we're getting. And, you know, mm-hmm. to that end, again, Richard Curtis has a solid handle on finding the right way to tie things up. And when it comes to that ending and we hear how kind of uh, Tim has chosen to um, to direct his life one by following his father's following in his father's footsteps of of um, reliving each day just to appreciate it more, but then yeah. finding it um, in this this place in himself where he stops traveling through time and just lives each day as if he already has done it once and just to really appreciate it. It's like that is really really clever. And yeah. I loved that message at the end of the film. And that alone, I think, um, made up for a lot of the other issues that I had. I uh, I want to talk about the sister one more time, because the sister I was a uh, it was interesting and I don't know how to feel about it, even though I even knew what was coming. And I still feel like I missed it. Uh, we We have in the opening New Year's party, we have a cutaway where Kit Kat, um, Catherine, the younger sister, is meeting uh, Jimmy, played by Tom Hughes, and we it, it's like a five-second cutaway to them at this massive party. And Yeah, basically they're kissing, right? I think that's... Yeah, they're the, kissing and then drinking, and she says, what are you drinking? And yeah. she says, oh, great, you know, the, whatever. It's just a, they're getting together and there's alcohol involved. You're absolutely gorgeous. I'm Katie, what am I drinking? Uh, at this point, we have no sense of context for who this Jimmy is, and we never really get any more context about Jimmy other than asides. We don't see him again, right, until he opens the door uh, at the apartment right before her accident. We see him I think. a few times. Um, he popped up at a different event where he was with a different girl and she's like looking at him all like angry and stuff and so it i had a sense that it was this on again off again you know always hurtful sort of relationship thing happening between the two of them so i missed that apparently i i don't know what the other one is it just didn't feel like it was something we were supposed to pay it attention to until oh my god as a result of a fight between jimmy and Kit Kat. She's drunk. She gets behind the wheel. She's in a car accident and is hospitalized. Yeah. Uh, that felt like a, um, you know, that poses significant demands on us uh, as members of the audience who are now trying to tie uh, to make a B story out of a setup that was effectively an E story. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and that was an issue I had with this story, uh, aside from the fact that he also travels through time with her. But I, I felt like they used that as an excuse to do more time travel. And that felt like an opportunity to force Tim to fix something in his real life without the ability to travel through time or something. You know, um, uh, aside from the right. fact that you're right, it was completely uh, very poorly set up from the beginning. Yeah. 
because you see him with his goofy friend with the big hair and 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 Jimmy, it's like uh, you, I never really had a sense of who the sister was with. And so, yeah, it was a problem. Yep. The, the whole thing is a problem. I'm glad I'm not alone. I had some problems with it. It it didn't make sense, even though Lydia Wilson, I think, is a delight. She was super charming. And even as she deteriorated and you get these hints that things in London are not going well for her, uh, I did. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, her performance here. I thought it was fantastic. Well, and she had a great uh, a great scene in there that I thought was really touching when she says, I'm the faller. You know, every yes. family's got oh. one, and I'm the one for our family. You're the best person in the world. You're top equal with my wife. I don't get it. Maybe, just maybe, I'm the faller. Every family has, like, someone who falls, who, who doesn't make the grade, who stumbles, who life trips up. Maybe I'm our faller. Oh. Yeah, so it just I don't know. So it's one of those heartbreaking moments that I, I I think worked quite nicely. It was one of those moments that I think works well in a Richard Curtis film. I I have a hard time seeing many people who are feel that they are actually the followers in a family to actually vocalize it so brilliantly. <laughs> but do you know if you've never heard anybody say that, you know the deal, right? No. If if you can't see the faller in the room. You're the faller, Andy. Oh, now I know my place in my family. (laughs) I'll I'll write (sighs) your family. I'll let them know that it's all out now. (laughs) Oh, good. I do think um, that it warrants uh, mentioning. I already mentioned the the two actors in the play uh, of Tom Hollander's that we had. uh, Richard E. Grant, uh, who's always brilliant. And Richard Griffiths, who is also always brilliant. Uh, the two of them are uncredited, strangely. So I'm assuming that they just kind of came on board to do this um, because they're buddies with uh, Richard Curtis or something or because it's the Richard Club and they all had to get involved because it's some contractual thing with the name. I don't know exactly. <laughs> but um, one, this was a kind of a mini reunion for Richard Griffiths and Richard E. Grant since they were both in With Nail and I um, many years ago. And also, this was sadly Richard Griffith's um, final appearance in a film because he um, he died several months, or the film was released several months after his death. I think it was um, he passed away in March 2013, and the film released later that year. So uh, sad to see him go. He was always an actor who um, was fun to watch on screen, um, whether it was something. Uh, small like this or uh, or like with Nail and I or Harry Potter um, where he was Uncle Vernon. Yeah. So the only other um, quirky uh, actor that I did want to bring up briefly that I found myself enjoying um, despite myself is Joshua McGuire as Rory, who was um, who was Tim's inept uh, legal a mate at the law firm. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, he's just a, just kind of a buffoon and uh, clearly Richard Curtis is having fun with him being the buffoon. But um, but I actually found myself enjoying him quite a bit in his buffoonery. So I, I will say that was the one uh, quirky, quirky uh, friend in the film that actually worked better for me than any of the others. Okay, can we just talk very briefly about dinner? I just have to this this whole idea of these dark dining places I find so strange. 
Um, I'm not going to go into the fact that they're clearly eating dinner for like three plus hours. That was kind of crazy. The clock that we had with the the dinner in the dark scene. It's like, yes. why are they eating dinner for such an cr- incredibly long period of time? But have you ever gone to one of these places? Because these are not, real but, places. Oh, yes. They're very real. And we have one. I'm pretty sure we have one. Uh, I read it about it in some sort of a hipster journal magazine, mega journal. And uh, that's supposed to be fantastic. Yeah, there it's such a strange concept these these places where um I I don't know if they're uh all uh, associated with blind people or what but basically it gives yeah. you the idea of basically eating um as if you're blind and I think that there's there's a a place it started in I think 97 um with a place in Paris and then um uh it's just kind of spread across uh Europe and North America and Asia and there are dozens of them. A lot of them are, I don't know how you say it, Don Le Noir. Yeah. Uh, dining in the dark. In the night. Yeah. yeah. In the night. Yeah. In the dark. Yeah. And um, it's it's an interesting concept. And it was really funny when they went to it in the film because I was like, this is going to be odd because it's clearly the least visual place that you could take a film. <laughs> You're just showing them in the dark. And we actually sit in there while they have this whole yeah dining experience which i thought was pretty interesting but it allowed for us to just pay attention to the uh, to the dialogue in the meeting it's a love hate sequence for me what i love about it is clearly there is a camera running in the dark because you can see some little tiny glimmers of light that never resolve but they're like people walking back and forth in some sort of reflection uh, is, is in there, which I think is a great touch. What I hate, which bugs me so much, is that the, they uh, they did something different with the audio. So it was not, um, you know, the, the audio changed to like voiceover audio. Clearly somebody, you know, it was, it was like ADR audio. Uh, they did it in the studio. It didn't feel like location audio anymore. And that bugged me for some reason. Like I, I can hear that now we're in audiobook mode and I hate it. <laughs> yeah that definitely is there as you kind of hear that voice change um yeah. i i question if they actually filmed anything or if it was just something they did with black and then they just animated some little dots of light moving around yeah maybe um, they did which yeah. reminded me of that um well, what was that uh, uh blake edwards movie with john ritter because he did something similar um but it was a little more um um r-rated <laughs> <laughs> uh what was that uh, skin deep it was where he was... he and another guy um, who they don't realize they're there, but they they come oh out of God. the room and they're in the dark, but they both are wearing glowing, glowing condoms. condoms. Yes, yes, remember that one? I totally remember that. <laughs> oh my deep. God, wasn't it skin? Yeah, deep? skin deep. Yep, that's what it was. Yep. Yeah, I I was at just the right age to enjoy the heck out of that movie. So was I. Oh dear. <laughs> I wonder how it holds right. up. Anyway, there's a random <laughs> reference for everybody. Yeah. Uh, how to do an award season, Andy? It was kind of a minor uh, film for award season. It had three wins, ten other nominations. Um, it, it did get recognized by the ARP uh, Movies for Grown Ups Awards. That's the American Association of Retired People, where Bill Nye <laughs> uh, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Um, however, he lost to Chris Cooper for August Osage County. And Richard Curtis was nominated for Best Screenplay, but he lost to Before Midnight. Over at our friends at the Saturn Awards, the Sci-Fi Fantasy and Horror Awards, um, it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, lost to Her. Best Supporting Actor, ben, uh, uh, Bill Nye, lost to Ben Kingsley for Iron Man 3. And Best Film Editing, lost to Gravity. And then this was an interesting one, the Golden Trailer Awards. 
Uh, for best romance poster, it did win for that poster, which I thought was uh, an interesting win. And then best best romance TV spot, they had a spot called a TV spot called Beginning, but that lost to a TV spot from The Great Gatsby. So uh, yeah, it's just one of those ones that it, it it fits in the genre awards, and then clearly the uh, the retired people awards. So there you go. Well- <laughs> Well, uh, for I, I, we need to move on, but I do want to just say it absolutely should have won against Ben Kingsley for Best Supporting Actor. Absolutely. Bill Nye, um, I, I think, is uh, real, uh, just the heart of this film. The, the, uh, uh, he provides kind of the balance of the film. He allows for a lot of the comedy to kind of stem from him, but then also he brings a lot of the gravitas to it later. How to do uh, at the box office? Well, Richard Curtis's time travel rom-com—it's not even a rom-com. Time travel rom-drom started with twelve million dollars, which is about twelve point four million today. Uh, the movie opened in the UK on September fourth, two thousand thirteen, then hit the US November first, limited, and expanded November eighth, where it found a pretty decent audience. The movie made uh, $15.3 million domestically and $74 million everywhere else, raking in just under $92 million in today's dollars. That gives the movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of $647,000, making it a great success. The one thing I thought was really interesting, Andy, and I, I have to admit I'm a little bit surprised that it didn't come up in your box office report, is how well this film did in South Korea. In South Korea, this movie was watched by more than 3 million people. And the highest numbers uh, among foreign romantic comedy movies in Korea, grossing a total of uh, $23,434,000 there, higher than any other individual country, South Korea. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, uh, you know, as we wrap up, I feel like I am more forgiving about this movie than I think uh, I was when I came into it. I, I realize that I'm overthinking so many of the rules. I'm delighted by Damal Gleason and Rachel McAdams and Bill Nye. And uh, I, I feel like uh, this movie is, is buoyed on their performances. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's, the performances themselves are punching above its class. Uh, and I, uh, I, I, I like it. I enjoy my time with this film. It's very easy with those three um, actors to forgive almost anything because all of them work so brilliantly in the film. I think it's time, Andy, for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our list of movies that we have talked about on this very show. Uh, or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart. It'll take you right over to this movie where you can add it to your very own list. Where do we start? First up, we have About Time. Or Numi's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. That's a tough one to start on. Yeah, that's been that's been kind of our, our oh brother block for quite a while. Yeah. And it's uh it it really does make it challenging. Cause yeah, then I have I'm, to I'm decide gonna... how often do I want to watch you know the Millennium trilogy again? Um yeah. but is it fair to judge it just on that, or should I be judging on the actual quality of the film? Yeah, on on this point, I you know if you put about time in front of me next to next to Numi, I'm gonna pick Numi. I, I think every time I do it right now. I think that she she was uh, you know it was obviously a career defining performance. So I'll go with mm-hmm. Dragon Tattoo. About time or the adventures of Baron Munchausen. About time. About time for me too. About time or King's Row. I would go with about time. I would also go with about time. About time or Midnight Run. Definitely Midnight Run. Okay. About Time or Infernal Affairs? Ooh. Infernal Affairs for me. Uh, yeah, I'll say Infernal Affairs. 
or at about time or what's up doc oh about time i'm gonna say what's up doc uh, i'm gonna go to the mat let's do it one, one two, two three, three rock. rock scissors rock <sighs> brush you about time or gremlins i'm gonna go with gremlins gremlins please about time or no oh please about time speaking of no however I do have to say that something else I noticed in About Time is we had one of your least favorite things in movie conventions, the conversation scene break, where in the middle uh, of a conversation, all of a sudden, we're in a new location because clearly the filmmakers just felt they needed <laughs> to split things up a little bit and make it more interesting. I know. And that made I know. Me actually, Another I thing I'm forced to forgive. Movie. So funny. Yeah. No, I, I'll still say About Time. Okay. All right, well, that leaves about time at 219 out of 353 on our chart. So it's about 38%. Not very high, but it had a hard time getting past that initial um, block with uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, that was a tough one. Uh, How did it do on your list? You know what's funny is considering the way that I ended up feeling about this film and a lot of the struggles that I had with it, you are right. This is an immensely watchable film. And if you can forget about the rules and, and move past that, it's fairly easy. And to that end, it rose a lot higher than I thought it would on my own chart. It landed at 734 out of 3964, which is 81%. Wow. Really shocked me. Wow. Oh, it's just man. It's what it's going up against. In some of these films, yeah. I'm like, well, I'd still pick it. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, on my own, it landed at 326 out of 1,023. That puts it at 68%. If, again, we go by the algorithm uh, over at letterboxd.com slash the next reel, this should be a three and a half star film. Uh, where did you land? I am at a three and a half star film. Three and a half stars. You know, that's what I'm going to stick it to uh, this this time as well. Although I have to say, even though I just watched this movie, uh, I was feel- I've, I've been feeling guilty all day. And movie night this week with the family, we're going to watch About Time, Friday night. I'm going to see it again, back to back. It is, as you say, uh, it's a watchable film. It is. And that's the benefit of Richard Curtis. Because even Love Actually, as much as I'm not that excited by it, it is very watchable. And I think that's just a skill he has when he's telling stories, despite some of the issues that I struggle with, despite the cliches that he constantly needs to throw in or the quirky characters. He makes a really fun and enjoyable film, even if I end up hating myself at the end of it. <laughs> or him. Well, he certainly knows how to tap into uh, our, our sort of uh, Western cultural romantic uh, uh, gestalt. And, yes. and that's a gift. Uh, that's a gift, certainly. He knows how to talk to us in the language of love. Uh, but we're not going to stick around in the language of love very long. Uh, where are we going from here? We're going down a much darker and more contemplative and um, loopy uh, (laughs) direction. We're going to be looking at uh, Christopher Nolan's um, epic space movie, Interstellar, from 2014 with Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway and uh, everybody, I mean, really, who's not in this film. There's a lot of people in this film. Um, it's going to be an interesting one to to revisit because I really did not like it when I initially saw it. I'm curious to see if it's changed at all. And I am curious to really kind of dig into this uh, from the context of a time travel 
aspect, which I, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but you know, we're going with it. Well, of course, uh, on the Saturday matinee, we talk about uh, we talk about our categories, right? For the list coming up this week, this uh, this will be based on uh, this particular film, Interstellar. So, what did we come up with for our uh, our potential categories? First up, we have environmental catastrophe. Second, we have Mean Matt Damon, which we're actually allowing to be any <laughs> any uh, actor that we've always loved who ends up coming on board to play kind of a very mean character. Or the third one. option is Daddy Issues. So if you, <laughs> yeah, if you head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel and join it on Patreon, uh, you too can uh, get to vote on what we're going to be talking about uh, on our Saturday matinee. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart. He runs the Instagram program. Ben Steerick helps out over there. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter and, of course, the Blotspot. The Next Reel theme, Ragtime Instrumental, can be found over at uh, Eli Catlin's SoundCloud page. Thank you so much, Eli. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. We had to we had to mine fairly deeply into the one star reviews. A lot of people uh, thought the movie was silly. I think that's pretty fair to say. I think that is pretty fair to say. Yeah, they did not agree. <laughs> they with they had those rules and they didn't get past them. They didn't get past the rules, but we did find a couple of substantive uh, one star reviews. Truly, deeply one star reviews uh, that I think represent the tonal quality of Amazon's bottom of the barrel contributions this week. Would you like to begin or would you like me to start? Um, uh, well, uh, I'll go ahead and kick it off. Okay. I've got one star by Carter who says, don't let other reviews fool you. This film is a thoroughly delightful run through time. <laughs> the acting is great. Rachel McAdams is truly spectacular. Domino Gleason is a believable sort of everyman. Richard Curtis outdid himself. I'm giving it one star so you don't get snookered by any grumpy guys who didn't get the point of the film and get all critical. It's really five-star entertainment. <laughs> I love its public service. It is. They're trying to Thank help you. Thank you, Carter. That's amazing. I have never read a review that tries to, to you know, steer the ship well, from what I the love bottom. is, so is that Carter is actually the one trying to snooker people. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, I have a one star by Pearl, who I, I think actually represents uh, a significant portion of the population who watched this movie and didn't like it. Pearl says, was expecting a movie about watchmaking. Hmm. <laughs> you aren't laughing hard enough. The clockmaker's wife. The clockmaker. That's, that's the other one that Rachel McAdams had been. <laughs> I just love it that actually there are people who say they found this review helpful. Right. <laughs> oh, wait, it's not about watchmaking? Oh, no. Hey. I'm not renting no, that then. Sure. <laughs> Skirt of that one. Oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. 
In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.